Hello and welcome. My name is Sue Langley and welcome to another of our Learn With Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. In our episode today, we have the first part of an amazing conversation with the fabulous Lord Gus O'Donnell, who has uh, a very long uh, history and background and a significant amount of expertise in the political arena, uh, particularly in the UK and globally. And uh, his interest in well-being has been long-standing and how to uh, bring well-being into the fore when it comes to the political arena. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I have to say it was hugely inspiring. So uh, join me now for the first part of the conversation with Lord Gus O'Donnell. All right. Well, we'll see if anybody else joins us or whether we're going to listen to the recording, but I will officially start because I want to make the most of, uh, of Gus's time now we've got here. Um, so welcome, if you are listening to the recording, welcome to this session, another of our Lemasu Live Expert in Conversations. And we are joined today um, by the fabulous Gus O'Donnell, who some of you may or may not be familiar with. So Gus, a lot of our um, people we get on here are uh, positive psychology researchers or neuroscience experts, etc. Um, and I'm going to get you to share a little bit of, of your background, but you have had a, a substantial career in the political arena. And yet one of the things that I think is most fabulous and why I've invited you and I wanted you to be a part of this is because of your interest, particularly in well-being. So would you like to just sort of share a little bit about um, you, how you identify yourself? Because you've done quite a lot of things. I could call you Lord Gus and all of these. But how do you see yourself? So basically, um, I started life as an academic economist. So economist would be a very strong word in my, my background. Although um, I spent most of my career uh, working in government, uh, in the civil service, mostly in the treasury, some of it in Washington and the IMF and the World Bank on the boards of both of those. And as cabinet secretary and head of the civil service for various prime ministers, I worked closely with John Major, but then it was his press secretary then with Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and then the first coalition, David Cameron and, and Nick Clegg. And my interest basically arose from all that time in government when, to be honest, you're mostly dealing with crises and um, you don't get a lot of time to sit back and reflect. But as I, you know, to be honest, mostly towards the end of my career, I reflected on what is it governments are really trying to do. And I think the big problem is they don't know. Um, they have a list of tasks when they come in, you know, we want 10 more hospitals, 20 more schools, more policemen or something like that. But they don't really understand what is it, you know, their ultimate goal. And I became convinced very early on that the ultimate goal should be for government to improve people's lives. Mm. Now, we can all talk about precisely what does that mean? And, and for me, as an economist, I wanted something measurable. And therefore, I found the whole life satisfaction literature um, the, and, and that got me into the well-being thing and I managed to persuade David Cameron who was then Prime Minister back in 2011 that actually this was really important and that our Office of National Statistics should start nationally looking at how to measure this and they did a whole uh, tour around the country asking people you know what mattered in their lives and all the rest of it and we ended up with what I know is, is the four ONS questions one about life satisfaction one about how worthwhile your, your life is and then one about um, anxiety and one about happiness 
And there's been a whole group of people who have then tried to analyze so what are the determinants of these things and in particular life satisfaction you know and therefore what is it government should do and that's why i'm still battling on um but i think there's been an enormous amount of grassroots success in understanding that life is about more than stupid things like gdp growth um politicians Part of the problem is they don't like the word well-being. And um, that is a real struggle. And if any of the people listening to this podcast can come up with a better way of describing it, because well-being is associated on the left. They don't like it because it's, it's moving away from a concentration on poverty. And it's somehow in their eyes, it's all about spas. It's all very middle class. And it's all about yoga and, you know, uh, and mindfulness and um and there's another group for whom well-being is all about mental health and that's it you know it's all about should we give people antidepressants or not and and then on the right there's this feeling that somehow uh this is interfering in people's lives too much it's the nanny state and um you know uh get a grip. what really matters is getting really good exam results earning loads of money and making markets as free as possible so uh, the political world is is uh, has been the problem. I think grassroots people like you yeah. are making an enormous difference. You know, if you think about I mean, Nancy Hay, who's the head of the What Works Centre and Wellbeing in the UK, uh, gave me the figures, and it's something like you know from hundreds of millions of uh, uh, like I think it was two hundred million uh, mentions of well-being in Google. Uh, about three or four years ago it's up to billions now so i mean it's taken off dramatically yeah. uh but not with politicians yet i mean you'll get people i see there's some new zealanders on and new yeah. zealanders have, have uh their government's made some progress in well-being um and that's a that's a real we could talk about that but um there are there are some real positives about what they've done and yeah. and some slight drawbacks but yeah we we might come on to that because I think it's interesting because I was at the global government summit in Dubai in 2019 um, Uh sort of met with um, a few people from Wales a few people from um, governments in New Zealand who'd been doing some good stuff Um, so I think that would be useful I want to come back first of all because you you have spent a lot of time in this political arena but I know this well-being space was important to you and I agree with you that the language so I was having this conversation only this morning is um, there's a particular paper that's come out about um, the importance of well-being in organisations, but they've called it wellness. And I'm like, I will not use the term wellness mm. because um, I live in Byron Bay normally. I'm in Italy at the moment, but I normally live in Byron Bay and, and we've got wellness covered. We've got yoga and Tai Chi and gongs and massages and whatever you like in the wellness space. But for me, well-being is a scientific study of a variety of things. Like you say, it's not just about do you go to a mm. yoga class? One of the things that you said that I was reading, and it's a really, it's a small little sentence, and I don't even know if you even remember saying it, and yet it really resonated with me. You said, I think it's my job to maximize global welfare, not national welfare. So that's a big take, Um, you know, and we've often talked about individuals on this session, but how do you see you and maybe us helping you on that national scale? So let's just talk about one specific issue that's got high political salience at the moment, migration, right? 
So if you want to analyze migration from a well-being point of view, you start by saying, okay, so there are three groups we really need to care about here. The well-being of the individuals who are the migrants, the well-being of the migrants themselves, the well-being of the people in the country that they're migrating to, mm -hmm. and the well-being in the country of the people they're migrating from. And you've got to add up all of those and then come up with a proper migration policy, bearing in mind all those three things. I once got severely misquoted by saying I was in favor of unlimited migration. It's complete rubbish, right? To be absolutely clear about that. Uh, because, you know, if we, if we get Africa to train all our doctors um, and then import them all, I mean, that's going to cause severe problems for Africa. Um, so, you know, there, there are severe problems in the country they're leaving quite often if they're highly skilled and in great demand. If we flood a particular area in any country with migrants, then you can understand that could overwhelm public services and that could people, put people off migrants. Um, and the third part of which there's some fascinating um, uh, evidence about migrants and their own well-being as to whether you know, how quickly they adjust to the average well-being of the country they've gone to, which I'm sure you know all about. So, so I think it's that, that to me is just get the mindset right, work out what are the things you have to do, and then we can have a political debate about how much we weight those three different things. So for me, that global approach to issues is massively important because, I mean, there are lots of people in the UK who don't realise they're doing it, but basically take the view that the welfare of migrants is worth zero. Uh, and therefore, you know, they should only analyze this, this problem in terms of what does it do? What's its impact on the receiving country? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, what I really love is that global perspective, because once upon a time, um, you only saw the people in your village or maybe your local market town. And, and that therefore, you know, the world was different then. You worried about your well-being in your little local community. Uh, these days, I mean, already this morning, I've been awake since 3.30 this morning, and already I've spoken to people in probably about 50 countries. And so if we're not thinking about it on a global scale, when will we think about it? Because you're absolutely right. You're, I mean, I emigrated to Australia, which compared to England is, you know, not really so different. Although there are a few challenges. I, I had mm -hmm. to get past this thing called hump day that people use, which I still refuse to. And the fact that they call football soccer. I mean, for goodness sake. <laughs> That's <laughs> so dreadful. <laughs> there are a few challenges. So, um, um, but to your point, some people, depending on where they're coming from, are going to have bigger challenges due to culture or language or background, etc. But we're in such a global organization, a global um, world now, across organizations, across personal, professional, we need to have that mindset. So what can we do, the, those ones of us that are on this end, who are practitioners, what can we do about sort of uh, impacting the system? Well, one thing you could do now, which would be really useful, is we, yesterday we just started our COVID inquiry in the UK, right? This is going to cost us possibly around a billion pounds, right? It's going to take years. Um, it's going to be, in terms of learning lessons, though, I think it's going to be pretty useless um, <laughs> because... You know, this is an exact example of something global. The fact, you know, the virus was global. Yes. The, the policy responses, on the other hand, were very national. 
Mm. We all did our own thing. In, in fact, in some cases, I mean, if you look at Australia, different parts of Australia did different things. <laughs> yes. So you've got, in one sense, this amazing experiment, the same virus around the world, very different responses. So we need to analyse, and I would analyse it in terms of overall impact on well-being, not just looking at deaths, but looking at the well-being of the kids who may or may not have been excluded from schools. You know, mm. so there's, it's a massive thing which requires a global study to learn the lessons. And, you know, I come at this with an open mind. I just want to know, well, what worked and what didn't for next time. Let's, let's sort this out and let's really understand that to what extent are we prepared to do things like close schools and really impact on kids' well-being and maybe their parents' well-being because we think it might have a very small impact on transmission. Mm. And so if you let, you know, particular specialism, discipline, analyse this on their own, you lose all sorts of things. And I would say that that would be equally true if somebody tried to measure this in a very crude economic way. So, you know, which of these things reduced, uh, you know, was, was best for GDP. I mean, that would be, you know, a, a crazy way to do it. So I think the, the well-being stuff and the science that you're talking about, that would be really good. And, but, and already, you know, some countries have already finished their inquiries. God knows how. But I mean, uh, but at least they've got some, some, some lessons from their own experience, maybe. Mm. So I think it's basically showing how an understanding of well-being and that approach actually makes a real difference to how you analyze really, really important problems. Mm. Not just, I mean, you talked about wellness versus well-being. I've had discussions with people about whether there's a hyphen between well and being or not. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the no hyphen brigade. Just Me to too, be I don't do Yay. hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and Tanya you've mentioned in chat that wording can or language can be important and we do find this sometimes when we work with organizations of what's your lead in and sometimes uh, with the positive psychology uh, approach you're with organizations you can get a lead in through strengths because it's strengths and performance and you know you can sort of get a, an edge there um, some are more open to understanding what well-being is some people still have a view that positive psychology is about being happy all the time. So I do think that language um, becomes uh, important. One of the things, just going back to the to the review, is um, of sort of you know the impact globally. Uh, John Hallowell presented at the. Um, uh, uh, Iceland conference about the impact um, of different countries on those that were the the people that he had better words than this the the countries that sort of tried to just squish it and lock everybody down compared to those that allowed more freedom yeah. and the comparison not just to deaths but to the economy and to your point people thought the people the countries that locked down initially would be worse off than like Sweden who just went I'll oh, let it go but it didn't actually impact the economy as much as people thought they just had lots more people die um so i think that's interesting to your point of looking at it from different angles and saying well is the economy the the be all and end all well no that was actually quite similar anyway it just meant a lot fewer deaths in countries like australia and new zealand so uh, that's exactly right but i mean i think it's alas it's a bit too early to say because remember covid uh, if you lock down a lot, um, what we found in the UK was with severe lockdowns, people didn't go to hospital for tests. Mm -hmm. So they missed early diagnosis of things. 
Um, so we are going to get a legacy. We're already seeing this of excess debts in the UK as a result of some of the things we did uh, during, uh, during COVID. So it's complicated. Mm. We haven't yet got the data to, to do it. But this international study, the trouble is nobody's doing it. I mean, you know, we're spending billions and nobody's doing the thing that really matters. And the WHO are... You know, small organization, they're not really, uh, I think, equipped. And, and the key to this will be making it multidisciplinary. Yeah. Um, you know, you need, you need the positive psychologists, you need the economists, you need, you know, the medics, uh, but any one profession on their own, and it kind of suddenly becomes all about deaths. And actually, you know, uh, I'm afraid it's bigger than that. Yeah. And then it's like Carol said, yeah, it, we can't just consider the effects on the system and their component parts. We've got to look at the holistic element. And it's funny because my my speech at, in, in Iceland at the European Positive Psychology Conference was it was called The Future is Human. But basically, I brought together uh, positive psychology, media, technology, uh, health, microbiome, oh. genetics, because to your point, until we start looking at things from a more holistic perspective, we may be missing out on on what's happening. So so. Let's think a bit more about that because obviously you were at Lake Como that's where we sort of met and you were part of talking about the um, world happiness report and the importance of sort of uh, bringing this um, this context to life and the well-being manifesto etc what do you see or how useful do you see the whole positive psychology research side of things in helping you get where you want to go as far as this is concerned usually important I mean because Number one, you get this point I mentioned earlier about people thinking well-being is entirely about mental health. Mm. And, and they, they think of it in entirely reducing a negative, right? That, you know, you've got people who've got uh, depression and, you know, mental health, you know, stronger illnesses. And so it's all about sorting that out. And actually positive psychology, you know, that becomes a very negative thing. Positive psychology is saying actually, you know, there are all sorts of things that we can do to help people have better lives and you know all of the positive psychology stuff i think you know just is so helpful to people in their everyday lives that's that to me is is kind of what matters i the one thing i would say with with the difference probably between psychologists and economists is that uh, economists are now very used to having evidence bases which are very very large so, for example, in my, in my day job, I, I chair uh, something called Frontier Economics, and we do microeconomic studies. We could be dealing with like three million observations, right, uh, where we're looking at, let's say, individual spending plans and how they're affected by something because banks have given us access to data on people's accounts and, you know, why they save, uh, what the impact of price changes are, um, you know, what COVID did for, for spending, you know, all sorts of interesting stuff. And a lot of the psychology experiments, I think this is picking up what a lot of other people have said, you know, they're done on psychology students. Um, I remember having a long conversation, this is definitely name dropping, with Danny Kahneman about um, the nature of some of the evidence that was in some of the stuff that he was using. And he was like a bit, bit defensive, to be perfectly honest, Absolutely. and said, um, yeah, you're right, you know. Um, and he wished he had those very large sample sizes. So I, I, one thing I would say is like, we, we just need to be very careful to make sure that when we push for this to be evidence-based, that it's good evidence. Um, mm. You know, I saw something, there's some crazy people 
there's 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 a, a theory that we should give everybody a universal basic income, uh, you know, irrespective of whether they work or not. Now, that's an interesting approach. It may or may not be true, but there's a study going on now where they're going to use a handful of people who are volunteers, some in this program and some not, and it's something like 50 people, and it's just totally pointless, right? It won't tell us anything, <laughs> any note whatsoever. And, and this is part of the problem. You know, you get all these things about, oh, this is good for your health or this is good for your well-being. And it's like you look at the data and it's like, come on, you know, um, this is just way too small a sample to, to be able to infer anything. And, well, and you know, quite often self-selected and all sorts of censored sample problems. So, yeah, I'm a bit nerdy when it comes to data and evidence. As, no, as you should be. And it's funny because it's one of the things that we often talk about is a lot of them are 33 first year psychology students that are part of, you know, a particular yeah. study. Um, and one of the things that we always say is um, treat yourself as a scientific experiment. So this is the research we've got so far. Uh -huh. So test it on yourself. Um, yeah. Do the N equals one and say, well, okay, the research tells me that doing gratitude is a good thing for this. Well, let me try it. Research mm. tells me mindfulness is great in this regard. Let me try it. And guess what? One might work and one might not. Um, yeah. But your point, when it comes to going global, we've got to have bigger data sets and to check that it can work cross-culturally. Um, your experience is um, very much UK-based, obviously, from a political arena. I know you've done a bit uh, in different places as well, but mainly UK-based. What do you see as being able to cross over across cultures? Um, what do you see as being some of the universal components as opposed to some right. of the more <clears throat> universal components? And, and this is, you know, you mentioned John Halliwell, and I've, I've worked from the start on this with people like John, Richard Layard, um, Danny Kahneman. You know, the, there's, there's been a group of us, Angus Deaton, um, who have, David Halpin, looked at um, this globally. You know, the World Happiness Report, Jeff Sachs was at the start of that, trying to see what one can infer from it. And, you know, I was a bit dubious. I mean, even the word well-being, you know, we, we, we talked about, you know, in Chinese, is it harmony? And, you know, there were, there were lots of kind of linguistic issues. Um, I'm surprised how much kind of comes through. If you look at those world happiness reports, you know, you can find things which seem to matter everywhere. You know, we, we, we know that very low income is very bad for well-being everywhere. Um, now, it... it peters off obviously as the you know as we all know uh, it's certainly not linear um things like uh, work matter hugely for people's um feeling of self-esteem their need uh, and good work as well because we are entering a phase where there's a lot of zero hours contracts out there there's a lot of work which is um really difficult um and and you know, we have to balance, you know, is that job better than no job? Um, so I think, yeah, things to do with work, things to do with, um, I mean, early life is, is the bit that really interests me because, God, if we get this right early on, you know, and um, there's a great project called the Be Well Project in Manchester going on now, which is starting to look at children and, you know, what are the determinants? And they're coming up with some fascinating stuff particularly stuff about gender identity, which I find kind of puzzling because it's um, not something I grew up with you know, very much. And uh, I'm looking forward to people analysing that to see what, what's right about it. But there's, there's, there's a lot, I think, that's coming through consistently. Uh, well, you and I about, you know, the whole question of social media, again, 
amazingly complicated. We're now going to have to start thinking about AI. Everything I do nowadays, everyone says, can you do the AI aspect of this? You know, and that is going to be big for all of us because, you know, I just, I literally came off a call with a company uh, that I work with and, uh, you know, they, they do some professional services stuff, which will be done by AI uh, in, in about a year and a half. And there are a hell of a lot of people doing that job at the minute. And the question will be, what do we do, you know, with this? And, and if you look at the great stuff that Angus Deaton's been doing on uh, Deaths of Despair um, uh, with Case, Case and Deaton are in the States about, you know, uh, opioids and all the rest of it. What you're finding is these are in communities where they've been becalmed. You know, they were manufacturing certain things. They, they had a good living, good jobs, good good, you know, blue collar jobs, suddenly all those products were being imported from China. Uh, the jobs have gone. They're still there. The welfare system in the States is pretty terrible. Uh, and they turn to drugs. And, um, and the suicide rates just going through the roof. So, you know, which is why, you know, life expectancy in the States is now starting to come down. I mean, it's just dramatic what's happening. Yeah. And I think that's because... We look at, we sometimes let market forces rip. You know, globalization, we all, you know, great thing, you know, cheaper products, cheaper consumer products for all of us. But there are consequences. And I think we, we need to make sure that, okay, it may be that that's the right thing to do. But can we use some of the money we're gaining from having cheaper consumer products to help those communities left behind with stranded? You know, we talk about stranded assets in climate change. Humans are going to have stranded skills. You know, it's a lot of accountants. If there are any accountants listening into this and lawyers, <laughs> boy, are you in trouble. I tell you, you know. I know. It's funny. I've, my nephew's 21 and he announced huh? a few years ago he's going to study accounting. I'm like, why? It's going to be the first job to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, oh. But just going back to that from a global perspective, because um, I think what's interesting is where you started is from a, a global perspective, there are a lot of fundamentals that are the same no matter who we are as a human being. And I remember years ago doing my first leadership program, I was heading to Singapore and I was, I was having, I was working with um, the country heads of a particular organization, one person from each country across Asia. And before I went, it was the first time I'd done a program in Asia and so many people around me was like, oh, you'll notice the cultural differences. And what I noticed more than anything was the similarities because yeah. fundamentally we, most of us want to be good people. We want to show up. We want to look after our kids and raise them to be good kids. We want to be happy and we want to matter. And what I'm hearing about your, um, the economics around jobs is it's not just any job. It's does my job matter? Does what I do make a difference in some way? Yeah. And I, I'm assuming that's what you're finding based oh. on massively and a sense of agency a sense of control over your workplace right the, the people who are most dissatisfied with their jobs are those where they have no control it's just like you know they're told do this do that and there's no freedom there's no attempt to kind of innovate and say well actually you know i could fill the shelves in a different order it'll be quicker if i did them this way it's like no you do this this and this and it's that in a sense they're treating them like a robot already and so Curiously enough, they're not having any human engagement and they feel unhappy. 
Thank you so much for listening to the first part of this discussion with Gus. I hope you found it as uh, inspiring, interesting, valuable as I did. Um, certainly thinking about how governments can prioritise making people's lives better seems so simple and yet wouldn't it be wonderful if that happened. So for more of these interesting conversations as well as invitations to join us on the live sessions with other experts or our live learning events on different topics, please check out learnwithsue.com.au and consider becoming a member of our global learning community. We hope we're here to support you to be the best you can be and wishing you a flourishing week ahead. Take care, everyone. Bye.